The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Well, hey, y'all, my name is Scott, and uh, it's been a while uh, since I've been up here. I think it's been like a month since I have been in this saddle. Uh, I feel rested up. Uh, I feel like I have a lot of energy, so if I have more than enough energy this morning, uh, that's why we'll get back to normal uh, eventually. Uh, but man, it's my joy and privilege uh, to be back in this saddle this morning. I want to start off with a story. Uh, so it was a hot day in August of 2008. Let me paint this picture for you. I was uh, at a BioLife Plasma Center, okay? I didn't at the time even have a stress ball, so I would just like make a fist like this over and over again, cranking out some plasma, trying to make a little extra money, okay? And uh, I got a phone call from my wife, which was odd because uh, she knew that I was at the plasma center and uh, rarely would call me while I was there, right? She knew I had to be hooked up to all this business. I wasn't supposed to be on the phone. Uh, but that that morning, it was even more odd because she was at an OB-GYN appointment. And so uh, on that morning, I pick up my phone in the plasma center. I assume that something is off, but I didn't know it was this off. You see, that day, the reason I wasn't at the OB-GYN appointment with her uh, was because they weren't supposed to be taking any pictures of our baby. They weren't supposed to be looking uh, at any ultrasounds or checking even her heartbeat. It was supposed to be just one of those normal, everyday, uh, you know, as everyday as that can be, OB-GYN appointment, right? But on this one, uh, they couldn't find our baby's heartbeat. And so uh, they decided uh, that she wasn't coming home. They were actually going to put her in an ambulance straight from the doctor's office and send her to the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. So I beg uh, my phlebotomist, that's what the people are, that work at, uh, you know, BioLife are called, right? I beg my phlebotomist to unhook me. I know I'm not supposed to get out early. Can you put the, whatever's in the cycle back in my body and can I get the heck out of there? So I get out of there and I meet Emily at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics uh, and it, it felt like we sat there for an eternity. Right? They're doing tests and they're checking things out. Uh, and finally, this team of doctors comes in the room and you see one of them kind of step forward to talk to us because nobody wants this job, right? Nobody wants to be the person that steps forward and has to give you the bad news. And so uh, finally, I don't know if they, he drew the short straw, however that worked out, he steps forward. And I remember this gentleman telling us uh, there was like a one in four chance that our baby would ever be born healthy. There was a 75% chance that our child would be born stillborn. And uh, so then he got into describing to us the condition uh, that our baby had. Our, our baby had fetal heart block is what it's called. And he said that's like the electrical conduction system in, in her heart has been damaged due to some autoimmune antibodies that uh, my wife has. In short, one of the chambers of our baby's heart was beating 160 beats per minute, right? And one of every like three or four of those uh, was the other chamber was beating in order to push the blood out to the rest of her body. We're talking 160 here and about 50 or less than 50 here. And so we uh, did uh, what only we knew how to do at the time was we put it out on every prayer channel we knew. There were like thousands of people praying for us. And for the next 11 weeks, uh, we went in for 33 ultrasounds. Three times a week, they wanted to check in to see if our baby was developing normally uh, and if she was alive, to be honest. And so it was this roller coaster season, right? Of like, uh, sometimes uh, I believed wholeheartedly uh, that everything was okay. Sometimes, uh, you know, if like if baby hadn't been kicking a lot, it'd be one of those times where we'd both go in there and be like, "Well, we just need to see that heart beating again in order to like really, you know, trust in in, in that season." Not just that, that was stressful enough as is, but on top of that, uh, Emily uh, developed, um, what's it called, gestational diabetes in that season. Uh, also on top of that, she had to take some steroids in order to counter the autoimmune thing that was going on uh, inside of her in order to um, give the, for the heart not to break down even farther. And while she was on steroids, she contracted shingles while she was pregnant in this 11 weeks. 
And so, uh, you know, there were just like this roller coaster season. Like I said, there was this one uh, specific tech that would, was an ultrasound tech. Her, her name was Chantel. And so we were there regularly enough that I got to know their names, okay? Uh, that's what you learn. And so uh, I walked in one day and I was like, Chantel, like today is the day. Like our baby's heart is going to be healed. Like, you turn that machine on, you stick that thing on my wife's stomach, and I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. Well, that's not what happened, but in that season, God did specifically give me a passage. It was weird. I was at a staff retreat with some people. Uh, at the time, I was doing college ministry, and I do not remember to this day how I got to this passage, but the Lord really laid it on my heart. It was like I'd never read it before. And uh, it's from Psalm 147.3. It says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Don't get me wrong. I know that this passage is talking about binding up, like different kind of brokenheartedness. Okay. It's not talking about a cardiovascular thing. I don't think. And I thought it couldn't be. Okay. But it helped me immensely to trust in God in that season. So our text today uh, is, is going to ask a, a question, okay, similar to the one that I was asking in that season. I felt like over and over again in that season, I was asking, God, will you heal my daughter's heart? And the text in, uh, that we're going to be looking at today is asking a similar question. It's, it's, will God save Daniel from certain death in a lion's den? Will God save Daniel from certain death in a lion's den? And here's the deal. The answer is amazing. The answer is that the living God can save, even from certain death, his faithful servant Daniel, who trusts God's ability to save him. So think about this, Harvest City. Daniel, the book of Daniel, is about standing firm. It's about living an uncompromising life in the midst of a changing culture. Chapter 6 specifically brings that to life in a situation when Daniel felt like death was certain. He did the right thing, and in spite of that, he's gotten thrown in a lion's den, and not even the king could get him out of that situation. But he still trusted God. The author tells the story this way to encourage Israelites in exile to remain faithful to God and to trust in him. And this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear the living God can save from certain death his faithful servants who trust his ability to save them. My sermon title this morning is Trusting God. And so uh, rather than reading this text all at once, this text uh, literally takes uh, place in six different scenes. It changes uh, where things happen and the people interacting. And so we're going to look at this scene by scene this morning so that we can see with crystal clarity the living God can save even from certain death his faithful servants who trust his ability to save them. Will you all pray with me? God, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning, uh, from uh, the little people all the way up to the oldest people in the room, that you would give us not only the cognitive, rational ability to be able to understand what's going on in this text, but God, would you give each one of us, this is what we really need every time we read the Bible, every time we sit under the preaching of the word, every time we study it, we need supernatural ability to understand the divine. So God, would you help us to lock in with you this morning to see you for who you are? Would you give us hearts that love your word and a desire to walk it out in our lives? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, before we dive too deep into this text, let's begin by getting to know the people in this story. Uh, how many of y'all like a good story? Anybody? Kiddos, any of y'all read this one in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the, Dan the Daniel story in the Jesus Storybook Bible? I could even tell you what those lines look like up in that story. I've read it so many times, okay? So there's a few uh, characters in the story that I'm going to introduce us to. They're not the lions, okay? Don't have a lot to say about the lions this morning. Sorry, kids. Uh, but the first one is this dude, Darius the king, okay? This is yet another king uh, that Daniel has the opportunity to serve under during Israel's time in exile. Some, some, some of y'all know the one Nebuchadnezzar. You've seen that big cucumber, right, in the, the, the Veggie Tales? Nobody? 
Anyways, okay, yes. you've seen it. Yeah, we got that, okay. So one of them was the big cucumber, okay. His name is uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Then in chapter 5, we find out that there's a new king. His name's Belshazzar, and he's the Chaldean king who was killed. And now in chapter 6, where we're at with Daniel in the lion's den, there's this dude, Darius the Mede, who received the kingdom when he was about 62 years old. Okay, King Darius, like King Belshazzar before him, notices Daniel's faithfulness, and he raises him up to a place of prominence. So he's the king. He sees Daniel's good at his job, and he's like, hey, I'm going to give this guy a promotion. King Darius is clearly on the side of Daniel in this story, but as we'll soon find out, he's not in control of his fate. So that's one of the characters, okay? We got this king. His name's Darius. He definitely uh, sees Daniel for, for what he's worth, okay? And then we've got these 120 satraps and high officials. I don't even know what a satrap is, okay? Had to look that one up, right? Like these are people uh, basically uh, that are leaders uh, in, uh, in the government at the time, okay? We're not told a ton about these 120 satraps and actually two officials, okay? Because one of the high officials is Daniel, so uh, we'll get to know him a little bit more. But uh, their role in this story is they're like provincial rulers that are basically in charge of the money, okay? There's tributes given, and they're in charge of collecting the tribute and making sure that it gets in the king's treasury. The only other thing that we know about them is that they conspire against Daniel. Long story short, they don't seem like the people that I would want to be friends with, okay? Uh, they don't seem like the people that you'd want to be your coworkers. all right? Their actions show them to be quite despicable, so we've got the king, we've got these satraps and high officials, and then we've got Daniel in the story. Uh, and so Daniel is God's prophet. And by the grace of God, he's now served under three Babylonian or Persian kings and found favor in their eyes. Similar to the way that Joseph seemed to find favor no matter who he served under, Daniel just keeps getting raised up no matter who's looking at him. This dude, uh, what do you think is old? Kids, what, what's like the oldest pers person you ever met, Gabe? What's the oldest person you ever met, dude? How old do you think they are? Jack, what do you think? Who's the old, what's the age of the oldest person you ever met? Your dad? <laughs> Bro, if that's the oldest person you ever met, you got to turn around and meet somebody else in here because your dad's not even the oldest person in the room. Okay, Papa, how old do you think he is? Owen? Dude, 76, okay? So this dude, okay? This dude, Daniel, he's not the age of your dad. That's a young pup, okay? He's not the age of your papa, 76. This dude is more than 90 years old when we get into this story with the lion's den. People take that for granted. This dude did not look that old in the Jesus Storybook Bible, does he, kids? He's old, all right? So this guy, you'd think he's like earned a little rest and relaxation for his retirement years, right? But God is not finished with this faithful prophet. Age apparently is no barrier to spiritual usefulness, okay? He's described in this text as faithful, having an excellent spirit in him. I don't know about y'all, but I ain't met very many 90-year-olds with an excellent spirit in them, okay? And as a man who trusted God. Which brings us to the key character in the story, right? We thought it was just these satraps and these high officials and the king and Daniel. No, no, no. The hero in this story is not Daniel. The hero in this story is the God of the Bible, right? God is, this, is the hero of every story in the Bible. In the book of Daniel alone, think about what God does. God saves a sinful and a weak people. He, see, he saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anybody know that story, right? From a fiery furnace. He saves Daniel from a den of lions. He answers prayer and he interprets dreams. He exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. He vindicates the faithful and vanquishes the profane. God rescues covenant forsaking people by returning them to the land of the covenant and he promises a glorious future to those with a sinful past. Daniel acts on the grace of God, but God is clearly the hero of this story. So this morning... We're going to be looking at the end of one act uh, uh, in the book of Daniel, right? Chapters 1 through 6 is basically Daniel's life story, and then it gets all prophetic and stuff on us after that, okay? There's kind of two acts, but we're going to look at the end of this act, and so I just want to make sure that we're cued in. I know a lot of times when we jump into a new book of the Bible, uh, we kind of get lost in one story. This isn't just a story about Daniel and the lion's den. There's a lot more going on here, so in, in order to do that, I want to look at just one thing from each one of the chapters so far in order to understand 
understand this pivotal role that this story plays in piecing together what Brian Chappell calls the gospel message of Daniel, all right? So chapter one, in chapter one, Daniel and his friends are kept healthy on a politically dangerous vegetarian diet as God communicated to his people, I remember you, okay? So that's what happens in chapter one. Like, they're like, you need to eat this. And Daniel's like, no, I'm gonna be cool on vegetables. And God says that, okay? He says, I will remember you. In chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, that's a giant cucumber guy, right? His multi-layered statue was displaced by a heavenly rock as God assures his people, I will rescue you. In chapter three, this is the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chapter, right? Uh, One like a son of the gods, it says, appears with Daniel's friends in a fiery furnace to demonstrate God's Emmanuel principle, I am right here with you. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration from animal-like insanity, this dude literally feels like he's an animal, all right? Like God restores him from that, communicates God's vital message to his own idolatrous people. He says, I restore the humble. And then in an important but gracious contrast, chapter five reveals the writing on the wall that humbles an arrogant king, King Belshazzar, and discloses God's loving warning of judgment to all peoples in all times. He says, I judge the proud. So if you're catching on so far, God has said to his people, I remember you. I will rescue you. I am right here with you. I restore the humble. I judge the proud. And now, as we come to chapter six, the concluding chapter of the biographical portions of the book of Daniel, the final brick in the foundation of Daniel's gospel message gets laid, preparing us for the glorious prophecy of God's future works in the chapters that remain. What's the final gospel truth that the loving God will unveil in this chapter? What's not super complicated? The Lord allows the aged Daniel to face his greatest challenge in a lion's den to say to his people then and to us now, trust me. That's what he wants to say in this chapter, trust me. So just a reminder, this story fits into the whole story, right? It's what we've been looking at for all of 2022. And these six scenes that we're going to look at today fit into the season of exile for God's people. Israel had their heyday. We talked about that. They had awesome kings like David and Solomon. They rebuilt, they built this awesome temple, right? Well, then we got a divided kingdom and ended, ended up, then the, the temple got crushed as other people uh, took over. And it's in this season of exile that Daniel's story takes place. And these scenes give us a glimpse of what it looks like to trust God in a day and age when the world around us is not. So scene one, here's scene one. You're at work, and you get a promotion. Anybody like that idea? I don't know about y'all. Like, promotions don't sound so bad, right? Daniel gets a promotion, and then his coworkers immediately plot against him. They don't like it very much. So here we go. Daniel 6, 3 to 9. Uh, I'm going to read it for us. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the the whole kingdom. This dude's going to put him in charge. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They're like, hey, we're going to make a law that if you pray to anybody besides the king, you're going to get in trouble. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. All right? Like, here's my interpretation of what happened right here. You know, Daniel gets a promotion. He's basically going to be put in charge of the whole land uh, so that the king can sit back and put his feet up a little bit and trust in Daniel. The rest of those satraps and high officials, they don't like it. They wanted that role. They, they wanted, and, and they honestly don't like it because uh, in this day and age, the people at the bottom of the totem pole were, were the Jews in exile, okay? 
And so they look down upon Daniel as a Jew in exile, and they're like, no, 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 you can't give that role to him. It's got to be fit for somebody else. And so when he gets promoted, there gets to be this tension, and they're like, how do we cut, our, how do we cut this guy's legs out from under him? Well, they couldn't find any way to like, cut his legs out from under him from what he did. He was a good and upstanding individual. And so they had to find something in his rhythm. They had to find something in his routine. They had to find something in his religion that they could cut him down with. And so that's what they do. They saw this dude, he prays, and he prays faithfully. And so they decided to use that against him. And they make this injunction, and they bring it to the king. And what you notice is they say all of the officials, right, came up with this idea. Well, they left out the fact that Daniel clearly was not a part of it. And he was like one of the head high officials. They left that out, and they tell him the wrong story, and the king signs it into law. He's like, of course I want people to pray to me, right? It makes him feel good. But with each one of these scenes, this is what I want to do. Because we don't have all morning, I want to take in each one of these scenes one truth to encourage us to trust God. So here's the first one from this scene. Even when it feels like everyone's out to get you, God's not against you. You with me? Even when it feels like everyone is out to get you, God is not against you. Literally, you've got 120 satraps and the two high officials all out to get Daniel. Every one of his co-workers, not a single one of them left out in bringing this injunction against him. But God's not against him. Think about this from the New Testament. Romans 8.31b says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? There may be times in our lives, folks, when it feels like every one of your coworkers are out to get you for the simple reason that you got promoted and they didn't. That could happen. There may be times when it feels like your friends have completely flipped the script and they have nothing but accusations to bring against you. There may be times even when our family members don't seem to be standing by our side when we need them. But God is always for us. God is always with us. If you are in Christ, he never leaves you or forsakes you. Just because it feels like everyone else is out to get you does not mean that God is against you. In Christ, he has proven his love for you by sending his one and only son to die for the forgiveness of your sins. He is for you and he has the power to use even the conspiring of others against you for your good and for his glory. Scene number one tells us, even when it feels like everyone's out to get you, God is not against you. And in scene two of this story, that's when they catch Daniel faithfully praying to God, even though he knew the risk. Let's look at it in the text. Daniel 6, 10 to 11 says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, okay? Take note of that. Like this dude knew that this injunction went into order, right? He could have stopped praying if he wanted to. He knew that the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber. He could have done it in a closed room too, uh, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God. Here's the key phrase, as he had done previously. This man didn't like do this as a show. He just kept doing what he had been doing in faithfulness to God. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. This one I want to make the point quickly. The truth about trusting God here is that trusting God with true devotion may seem risky, but being faithful to him is the wisest risk you'll ever take. You see, trusting God with true devotion may seem risky, but putting your trust in God, that's the wisest risk you're ever going to take. For some of us, the most risky thing, think about this, kids, the most risky thing for some of the adults in the room would be opening their mouths and telling their friends about Jesus. Because in our city, not everybody in our city loves Jesus. Y'all know that, kids? You met anybody that that's not true of? I met a quite a few people that that's not true of. And so it's hard sometimes to show true devotion to God. It feels very risky. But this text tells us that being faithful to him is the wisest risk that you'll ever take. You see, there may be moments when continuing to obey God and his word in this day and age might seem to get us in some really sticky situations. But God is good. 
God is wise and God is sovereign. And that's the three-legged stool that Jerry Bridges taught me a long time ago is the stool that we stand on to trust God, his wisdom, his goodness, and his sovereignty. And trusting him looks like obeying him no matter what because Jesus has paid the ultimate price for us. Y'all, maybe being honest about something at work when somebody's done something that lacked integrity seems risky. Maybe standing up for the oppressed might single you out in your friend group. Maybe speaking up about God's grace in your life could get you ostracized. But continuing to be faithful to the one who has always been faithful and who will always be faithful is the wisest risk that you could ever take. Amen? Scene three. In scene three, Daniel's accused, right? They catch him praying, but now they bring the accusation against him, and the immoral law that they've developed is upheld, and even the king can't save him. Look at it in verses 12 to 15. It says, Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, he was much much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Side note, this dude tried everything he could in order to get out of it. Then the guys come back. They say, then these men came by agreement to the king and said, said to the king, no, O king, that it's a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Even though he's the king, there is no way out of this for him. The king literally tried to find all, any loophole he could in order to get Daniel out of being thrown into this den of lions. But these men had squarely backed uh, Daniel into a corner. The truth about trusting God here is that there are some situations that even the king of the known world cannot save you from. So we need to be wise about where you place your trust, okay? Uh, This was easier. It's easier with Nebuchadnezzar because in Nebuchadnezzar, he built up this amazing palace and and, and you can like even like, it's it's one of the like wonders of the world now if you were looking back and what he had built up. But basically the throne that Darius sat on would have made him the king of the known world at the time. So you think about it, right? Like if you got the king of the known world on your side, you're thinking, okay, if he likes me, I can keep doing my prayer thing and I should be okay, right? Like clearly this guy should be able to get him out of it. Well, that's not where Daniel had placed his trust, but no matter what, this king did like him. This king saw him as an upstanding individual, as somebody that he wanted to put in charge of his kingdom, and he labored till the sun went down and he could not rescue him. You see... Trusting God looks like being wise about who and what we're placing our trust in. Think about this with me. It's like the, uh, this old children's song goes, kids, help me out here. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. So if we're going to put our trust, if we're going to put the things that we're dealing with in our life in anybody's hands, whose hands should we put them in? Who do you think has the biggest hands out there? Dad's got pretty big hands. What about God? God's got even bigger hands, right? Like if we're thinking about, that actually really helps my illustration, Jack. You just nailed it right there. Here's the deal. Nothing in our lives is too big to put in God's hands. Amen? Nothing in our lives is too big to put in God's hands. But there are things that are too great for us to put in the hands of the people around us. You with me? Think about this with me. We do this oftentimes. Our spouse doesn't have big enough hands to hold the entirety of our happiness. We cannot put our trust in our spouse in order to make us happy. There has got to be bigger hands to be able to give us the happiness that we desire in life. Our children 
Their hands are not big enough, parents, for us to place our trust in and to live vicariously through and to think that that is going to fill us up. Their hands just aren't big enough. Their shoulders can't bear that weight, right? Think about this with me. The people around us, no matter how good of friends they are, cannot hold the full weight of our need for companionship. Because God created us in his image, first and foremost, we need companionship and intimate relationship with him. That is not a weight that any great friend around us can handle because a part of our loneliness is a loneliness for God. And we were created to live in intimate relationship with him and those around us. You see, there are some situations that even the king of the known world couldn't save us from, so we need to be wise about where we put our trust, like Daniel was. Next scene. In this next scene, this is kids, this is where it gets real interesting. This is where Daniel gets thrown in with the lions, all right? And he gets sealed in there. This is verses 16 to 18. Read it with me. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, and the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. The king's like, I couldn't help you. You're going to have to trust in your God. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his uh, lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. He's like, well, this is closed. This is like, you know, I can't do anything. And then, verse 18, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. All right, think about this with me, kids. If you had to pick where you were going to make your bedroom for the night, do you think you would make your bedroom in a den of lions, or do you think you'd make it in the king's palace? What do you think, kids? Huh? You have Owen. Owen picks the lions, okay? Uh, I'm guessing that most of us are going to pick the king's palace, okay? My guess is the king had some pretty great video games in his palace. You think you're going to pick that? No vids. No, no vids, Owen, in the, in the den of lions, okay? Uh, uh, the king probably had a pretty great big TV, maybe one of them 70-some-inch ones, okay? Uh, up there, that's what the majority of us would pick when we think about the decision, right? We'd pick making our bedroom in the palace, But when you think about it, trusting in God can make a pit more peaceful than a palace. Y'all with me? Trusting in God can make a pit more peaceful than a palace. Did you see what it said about the king's night's sleep, right? Verse 18, the king went to his palace. He spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. There's nothing that could distract him. And sleep fled from him. This guy could not get a wink of sleep. But what we'll find out in the next scene is that Daniel's night in the lion's den, even though he spent the night with lions, they were like cuddly cats, you know, that he wrapped his arm around. He took a little nap. That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible has, right? He's like taking a nap on the side of that lion, right? It was a peaceful night there. Harvest City, our peace doesn't come from our surroundings. Our peace comes from our Savior. That's what we learn in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It's like that old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. For us, everything else, no matter where else we place our trust, could be sinking sand apart from placing our trust in Jesus Christ, the solid rock. Uh, Here's scene five. In scene five, God delivers Daniel and brings justice on his accusers, all right? Here's verse 19 to 24. If you're in for the the justice, you're going to love this part, okay? But I think it's pretty strong, to be honest. It says, then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out with a tone of anguish, and the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. That should be it. That's all we need to hear. Daniel spoke, right? He's not, he didn't get eaten by a lion. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. 
And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Not a scratch was on his body. Here it is. Because he had trusted in his God. In one phrase, why were there no scratches on Daniel? Why did these lions not eat Daniel? It wasn't just because of an angel, right? It was because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Y'all, did you hear that, Jack? He broke all their bones in pieces. That's what those lions did to these other people, okay? Think about this contrast, folks. On one hand, we have Daniel, right, who's trusting in his God. He's put in this den for an entire night. We're talking minimum probably eight hours, okay? For the entirety of the night, Daniel's in there. He sits there peacefully, and these lions don't touch him. Then you've got Daniel rescued, right? He comes up out of the den, and these people who had maliciously accused them, their, their feet barely hit the ground, in this pit, and their bones are broken to pieces, and there is justice brought on them through these lines. I don't know about y'all, but that has got to be divine. Here's what we learn from this scene. It's that the living God can save, even from certain death, his faithful servants who trust his ability to save him. There should have been no way out for Daniel from this lion's den. This brother should have gotten eaten by all accounts by these lions that are clearly hungry enough to eat 120 satraps and their families when they go up in that pit. It's not that they weren't hungry. It's that God saved him from certain death. Think about this. Christians have long noted similarities between the story, uh, Daniel's story and the New Testament story about Jesus Christ. We, we read in, in Daniel 6.6 6, that the high officials and the satraps conspired against Daniel. In the New Testament, who was it? It's the chief priests and the elders. They conspired against Jesus to arrest him and, and by stealth and to kill him in Matthew 26. The conspirators could find no corruption in Daniel. Similarly, the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, Mark 14.55 says. Daniel's found guilty of transgressing the law of the Medes and the Persians, right? A convenient law that they had just made. Jesus was found guilty of transgressing the law of the Jews. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he is claimed to be the son of God in John 19.7. Think of this. King Darius unsuccessfully tried to save Daniel. Similarly, Pilate unsuccessfully tried to save Jesus. In Daniel 6.23, we read that Daniel trusted in his God. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus trusted his Father completely. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed, Father, if this cup cannot pass from me, have your will be done. You see, Daniel descended into the pit in his grave, you might say. Similarly, Jesus' body was laid in a tomb, and Daniel's grave was covered with a stone and sealed. Jesus' tomb was also covered with the stone and sealed. The king found Daniel alive early the next morning and had him lifted out of his grave. In the New Testament, we read, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they, these three women, went to the tomb where an angel told them Jesus had been raised. See, after God saved Daniel from certain death, we read that Daniel prospered. And after God raised Jesus from death, Jesus prospered. Jesus said all authority and heaven and earth had been given to him. Daniel clearly prefigures Jesus Christ. But Jesus is much greater than Daniel, y'all. God saved Daniel from certain death, but God raised Jesus after he actually died. Moreover, Daniel rose from his grave only to die at a later date. Jesus, by contrast, rose from his grave and he lives forever. In addition, whereas God prospered Daniel during the reign of Darius, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And finally, God's delivering Daniel from the lion's den gave Israel hope that God would deliver them from their pit of exile 
But God's raising his son, Jesus, from the dead gives you and I hope that we will also be raised from the dead. As Paul put it, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have died. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, all of us who belong to Christ. The point is that our God is the living God who is able to deliver, even from certain death, those who put their trust in him. Harvest City, it's as simple as this. If God can deliver Daniel from certain death in the lion's den, even more so, if God can raise Jesus up from the dead, then God certainly is worthy of our trust in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in right now or whatever circumstances come our way this year. He is worthy of our trust. And that brings us to scene six, okay? Last scene for this morning. Everybody take a deep breath. You know, it's good. All right, here we go. Scene six is this. The king makes a decree, and the narrator gives us a glimpse of the future. So a lot of times when these things happen, right, we read a story in a narrative, and we're like, oh, cool, climax. He got out of the den. Like, yep, and then we move on, right? There's some really important stuff that happens in this decree right after this. Verse 25 to 28 says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Literally the whole earth, okay? This is the king of the known earth. He says, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Y'all, what we've got to see is that this change of heart for Darius the Mede to honor the God of Israel, to honor the living God is huge. But then even more so, this passage says that the next king, King Cyrus, in his reign, Darius is also going to prosper. That's a game changer. Here's the truth about trusting God here. We may not see the fruit of our faithfulness with our own eyes, but we don't trust God to get fruit. We trust God because he alone is worthy of our trust. You see, the way that Daniel trusted God in this season had a huge effect on Israel's future that he didn't get to see all of because he's like 90, yo. He didn't have a lot of life left. So the sign of God's faithfulness that we all remember is Daniel's rescue from the lions, right? Like, uh, kids, if you remember anything about Daniel's story, you're like, that's the dude that was in a pit of lions, right? That's what we honestly, that's what we all think of. But the greater sign in this passage that proves the value of Daniel's hope for his nation and for us is almost hidden in the last words of this chapter. It's when it says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You see, Cyrus' name is most important because under that ruler, the people of Israel began to return to their homeland. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. And because they returned to Israel, ultimately, a child would be born in the city of David who would be Christ our Lord. Daniel's influence and God's promise finally were fulfilled according to the hope Daniel maintained into his own age, old age. You see, the message to the Israelites in exile and to us is that our hope in God is not misplaced. Though we may have to wait to see the results of our faithfulness and may never see them, we are uh, with him. Our God will accomplish his purposes. So we trust him and we live for him because we know that God shut the mouths of lions for Daniel, and subsequently, he shut the mouth of the raging lion who seeks to devour us, right? Who steal, kill, and destroy. We trust our Savior, and we live for him. We always live in the hope of the ultimate victory that he will provide for us. It's like, uh, y'all, y'all, kids, you, you like trains? Anybody here? Kids into the trains, right? 
It's like a steel locomotive, right? That's the first uh, train in the, that pulls all the other trains, hurtling through history. The gospel progresses on the timeline God has designed to rescue his people. It just keeps going forward, chugging forward. Institutions may fail to reflect him. Empires may conspire to oppose him, and his own people may reject him, but the gospel prevails as God has designed. If we put our hope in God, it is not a misplaced hope. So let me wrap up uh, by finishing the story that I was telling you earlier about our first baby. Right, 10 weeks after the ultrasound, uh, after 10 weeks of ultrasound after ultrasound, actually, uh, the doctors told us that they thought it was time for our baby to come out. They scheduled a C-section for November 5th, 2008 at 9 a.m. And when that day arrived, we had people pray like crazy for a healthy baby. And y'all, that's not something I want to miss, okay? I'm not grossed out easily, so I'm up in that room, okay? I got, I got everything on. I got in that surgery room. I watched every moment of that happening. It was fascinating. But the most fascinating thing was when my daughter came up out of that uterus, she cried. She cried like a normal baby. And she passed her APGAR test that day, which is out of this world. You know, this kid that was given less than a 25% chance of being born alive passed her APGAR test like she was a healthy baby, right? And then they hooked her up to this Game Boy for the next three days. Well, it looked like a Game Boy to me, okay? Uh, it was an external pacemaker, and it just had this little curly cue uh, coil at the end of it, like what would be on the end of a pig's tail, okay? And they stuck it up through her belly button, and they fished it all the way up to their heart, and then they just twisted it a little bit to screw it in for three days. And that thing made her heart beat for three days until they could open her up and have surgery and install a pacemaker so that she could live just like you and I, her heart, with the help of a pacemaker, now works pretty efficiently. Y'all, it was only 12 days after my daughter Madeline was born that we took her home from the hospital. 12 days, and they said there was less than a 25% chance that she would even be born alive. Looking back, God's sustaining grace to keep Madeline alive and to comfort Emily and I through that season was miraculous. Both Emily and I look back on that season, and as time uh, has passed, when we look back on that moment, we think we felt closer to God than we've ever experienced before. People have asked us, would you, if you went back, would you change anything, you know? And we both say no every time we're asked. God had a perfect plan for us and our daughter. We're closer to him, we're closer to each other, and now we have a beautiful 13-year-old daughter who is as gifted as they come. We may not be Daniel, y'all, but by the grace of God, Emily and I begged hundreds of people to pray for us and to pray with us as we cried out for God's mercy. I would have done it with windows open. I would have done it if it was against the law because it was our only hope. We may not be Daniel, but the grace, by the grace of God, Emily and I lavished praise on God as Maddie passed her Afgar test, even though there was less than a one in four chance that she was going to be born alive. We may not be Daniel, but by the grace of God, Emily and I let God get the glory time and time again as we tell people that in our moments of greatest weakness, that's when God showed himself to be the healer of our daughter's broken heart. You see, God delivering our daughter was great. God delivering Daniel from a lion's den was even greater but delivering every person who trusts in him by sacrificing his one and only son on a cross and raising him from the dead three days later was and still is the greatest moment in all of history. And that is the good news that should prove to each one of us. The living God can save even from certain death, death that we deserve because of our sin, his faithful servants who trust his ability to save them. Y'all, my hope and prayer this morning is that we would be people who trust in him at all times. As we transition uh, from sermon uh, to the Lord's Supper, I want to remind us that one of the main reasons that we trust in God is because he loves us so much. There's a poem that I found uh, this week just to, to remind us of this love. It says, what language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. 
Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Y'all, we're going to gather around this table, the Lord's table, to express our love, our love for one another and our love for our Lord Jesus Christ. We also gather around this table to remember, to remember when Jesus Christ took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And to remember the cup when Jesus took that cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. We gather around the Lord's Supper this morning to show our love for Jesus and for one another and to remember the good news of the gospel. Let's remember and respond to the good news of the gospel together this morning. There's a couple ways uh, you can respond here at Harvest City. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're not a part of our church, you're welcome uh, to come up the center aisle uh, to receive the elements and head, around, head back to your seats around the outside. Uh, the second would be, y'all, for most of us, right, like trusting in God, if you're a Christian, uh, we have great moments where, where trusting in God feels pretty easy, Right? But it's those, it's those circumstances, it's those situations, it's things that happen, uh, sometimes it's sin, that trip us up and make it hard for us to trust God in other situations. Uh, and so if there's something like that in your life, man, we would love you to just come back. There's going to be some people in the back that you could pray with. Uh, have somebody pray over you and just ask God uh, to renew your faith, to wash it white as snow, to make it so you're seeing things clearly and you can trust him as a God who is good, wise, and sovereign once again. And then the last way would be just to stand and sing with us uh, from the bottom of your heart at the top of your lungs. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so, so much that uh, what happened for Daniel in the lion's den, what happened uh, for Emily and I uh, over 13 years ago uh, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics uh, is just a blip on the radar compared to your amazing rescue of us. Compared to the way that you rescue us from sin, you ransomed us and you bought us back and you, uh, you loved us so much that you were willing to send your one and only son to give his life so that we could live. God, thank you for that amazing rescue. Would we go back to that moment? Would we go back to that time in history to remind ourselves on a regular basis that you are worthy of our trust? God, would we not try and get our bearings for our trust based on this week's circumstances or that thing that happened in our lives that we may not understand the end of just yet, but when we need to know who it is that we place our trust in, would we go back to the cross of Christ and that empty tomb where you rose from the grave? Would that remind us that you are worthy of our trust? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.